Good morning, family. Hope everyone's having a good Sunday morning so far. Hope everyone has been warmly welcomed and has. Uh, thank you, band, as always. Thank you. Uh, it's great to have Emily back with us, and it's great to hear that her family's mostly on the mend. Uh, you can keep on praying for Ted. He's still feeling the effects of, uh, of COVID, and so we hope to see him back soon as well. We're going, <coughs> excuse me, we are going to continue our trek through the book of Acts this morning, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can prepare by flipping to that if you wish. Uh, and we're going to be continue talking about how the church, early church, expanded through uh, the known world at that time and how God was working uh, in, in his people during that time. And I know that everyone comes to church uh, maybe with different uh, weeks behind them, maybe good things going on, maybe struggles and hardships, maybe who knows where you are. Uh, uh, you can have a stressful week, you can have a great week, but as we come here to gather, I just pray that we all can gather together and take a breath and look upon who God is. Look upon his graciousness and his love for us. And hopefully through the word we can see how he still loves and still moves and still calls us to be his. And that we can take encouragement from that. And we can re-energize ourselves for the weeks to come. So let's dive into Acts chapter 21. And before we do that, let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are and how you show yourself to us through your word that we can pick up your word and we can read about how you have moved throughout history, how you have moved through people's lives who have called upon your name and how you still move today. So Lord, as we open up your book and we read in the book of Acts and we read about what, how Luke has recorded the expansion of this early church, I pray for each and every one of us that as we read this, we see it not just as a story separated from us that takes place back then, but as a story that shows how you move and it calls us to follow you in the same way. It calls us to realize you're working in us in the same way. That we can be encouraged by it and grow, by, grow through it. That you bring it to life in our, in our minds and our hearts as we process what it means to be one of yours. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter named Jillian, and she loves... She's just like she started this, loves to run in front of you and say, I'm the leader, and try to make you follow her. And it's really funny because a lot of times sh she doesn't know where she's going, but she still wants to just be leading us. Uh, we saw this a, a lot of times when we were moving out of the old church. She would jump in front of people, get under their feet, saying, I'm the leader, and then you have to tell her where you want to go. And I understand that. I remember back in elementary school being a line leader where they had the whole class line up, and it was kind of a privilege, a maybe a reward for being good, or maybe they were on a rotation, you could be the line leader. You could lead the class. You're going to be the first one in line, even though you're just leading them where the teacher told you to go and where you always went. It felt cool to be that leader. But the reality is, my little daughter had to be told where to go, and when you're a line leader in class, you had to be told where to go, and so you're really actually following someone else. And so the question always comes back to, who are you following? For any one of us in any point of life, who are we following? It's a profound question, yet a simple question. When we think about it, we're all following someone. And there's so many things that are vying for our attention, calling for us to follow them. And, and we even 
being called on social media that people get follows or you're following someone on there and they're, they're grabbing your attention and they want your, your time or your devotion or just your, your energy or your eyeballs, but people are calling us to follow them. Whether it's philosophies or ideologies or political parties, everything seems to be saying, follow us. And so we have to ask that question, who do we follow? Who do you follow? And as a Christian, this becomes really to home because God calls us to recognize who he is and to follow him and really, really get down to it. A Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ is someone who follows God, who listens to him and seeks to walk in his ways. And so when we're talking about a Christian, we're, we're told we're supposed to follow God. And we do that imperfectly because we're still human and we stumble and we fall and we don't do it as well as we should do, and we sometimes get distracted when we see something shiny or when we see something that we think might be better, or maybe when we start to question, why, God, would you have me go this way? I think we maybe for today or this season I might go this way. And we struggle with that, but we're still called to fall, follow. We're called to follow our God because God calls us. The one who saves us from our sin and from our, from our own wrongdoing, he calls us to follow him, the one who's still at work in us, changing us bit by bit, is calling us to follow him. And so we should listen and we should pay attention and we should follow the one who loves us more than we could possibly fathom, the one who knows who we truly are and still calls us to follow. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 20. Paul following God no matter what. That he knew what awaited him in some aspects, and God had called him to this action, and he was going to follow him no matter what, because God had revealed himself to Paul. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts 21. And we're picking up the story that we, we kind of are going through the book of Acts, and we're picking the story, and we just saw how Paul was talking to the elders of Ephesus, uh, the Ephesians uh, el- elders, and he had kind of encouraged them, and he kind of outlined what a elder or leader was, and so the story picks up after they, after they leave that town, and it says this, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad, uh, abroad aboard, I'm sorry, and set sail, and we had come in sight of uh, Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit we were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Tomaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed there with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an elderly disciple with whom we should lodge. At the get-go, uh, this, this passage might be really confusing because there's a whole lot of place names and, and travel information and itinerary of where Paul is going, but the short of it is this is this charting his course as he's heading back to Jerusalem and the places he stays and, and the urgings he gets from various disciples as he's heading back to Jerusalem. And when we read that, we go, what should we take from this? What should we take from what we hear and what we learn from Paul? And I would sum it up in this, that we're supposed to take from this, that we're to refuse to deviate from God's call. Refuse to deviate from God's call. Because that's what we see Paul doing in this passage, that he had a clear and defined call from God that he was to go to Jerusalem no matter what. He knew a little bit about what was going to happen, but he was headed that way. And he refused to deviate from what God had called him to do. Now, this is important to hear that when we're talking about this and when we take this and we say this is a call to us that when we know God's call, we don't deviate or, or leave that call. This, we're not talking about salvation. That, then we're talking about what comes after salvation. What's next? That this is, we're not saying that somehow we're saved by how true we follow God's call. No, God saves us through Jesus Christ and him alone and what he accomplished us. He brings a new life into us and we're changed. And because we have this now change of life and, and just change of how, who we are, it's from that new life we start to follow. It's from that new life that we start to see what God has called us to do and we walk in his steps. It's from that new life empowered by the Spirit based on his word that we start to put into action our faith and we refuse to be deviated from what God makes clear that we should do. That we're saying now as Christians, we, we see what God calls us to do as believers and we stand firm in it. We are steadfast in following it. We hold fast to what is true and what we've been called to do. We refuse to deviate from God's call. And when we start looking at this passage, as I said, this talks about all of the places Paul stops. But to understand truly how Paul is so firm in his conviction, we have to take a little broader perspective of the, of the context of Acts 21. Because if you remember, last week we talked about Acts 20, and we see how, why Paul is so adamant that he has to go to Jerusalem. For in Acts 20, verses 22 through 23, it says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. This is Paul talking to the elders of, of Ephesus. He says, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. This is Paul talking, he says, I'm constrained by the Holy Spirit to head back to Jerusalem. Somehow, God had revealed to Paul, this is what you're to do. You are heading back to Jerusalem. And guess what? It's not going to be pretty. Imprisonment, afflictions await you. Matter not, you go to Jerusalem. And so he knew that. 
He was set in that. He was convinced and confident in that. And so he was heading in that even if others were persuading him, maybe that's not what you're supposed to do. He had been, God had revealed to him what he was to do and was walking faithfully in it. And he keeps that attitude up. Even in verse 21, passage, uh, chapter 21, we see that in verse 13, after people had were basically begging him, don't go to Jerusalem. It's not going to be pretty. You're going to be in prison. You're going to be sent off to the Gentiles. And what does he say? He says, and then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He was convinced and convicted. God had called him to this course of action, and so he was not going to be persuaded otherwise. There was no turning back to Paul, for Paul he knew what God had called him to. And from Paul's attitude, I think we can learn how we're supposed to follow our Lord. We can learn from his attitude how we're supposed to walk in God's ways. And the first thing that we know about Paul's attitude is that he was not being deterred from God's call because he thought or was promised something good would happen. It's not like he had bargained with God and said, okay, I will follow if it works out well for me. No, he was following God no matter what. We see this attitude that he did not have a promise that it was going to work out well. In fact, he had the exact opposite. What he had was a assurance by the Holy Spirit that in any town you walk into, Paul, afflictions and imprisonments await you. And so Paul was not thinking, man, I will only do this if God does this. No, he says, no matter what comes my way, I follow. No matter what God calls me to, I am walking as he calls me to walk. And so he committed to follow even though he knew imprisonments and affliction in some form, in some way, were going to await him. But he didn't do it just because he was promised by God it would all work out. No, he did it because he knew who God was and walked in his ways. And this also shows Paul's amazing trust in who God is. For he sees and knows and promises, hey, there's afflictions, there's imprisonment, there's things that you're not going to like that you're going to walk through as you follow my call. But guess what Paul says? I trust you, God. I see you as more valuable than my life. And that's actually a recurring theme if you ever read Paul's writings in the New Testament. He says, I count following him and living for him and doing what he's called me to do be more valuable than my own life. And he continues that here as we see in the book of Acts. He says, I am going to follow even though it might cost me my life. Why? Because he trusted and had faith in who God was and how God was working in that situation. He had faith that God was going to use whatever would, was going to happen to this person, Paul, to grow God's kingdom and to expand the gospel. And so we can learn from Paul's example. That when we see, well, when we see Paul's example and his attitude, we can learn from him. We can say, well, what does this mean? Well, the first thing is that we need to have that courage that Paul had that when God reveals us to us what we need to do, we do it. We walk in that. We, we follow him no matter what. That we seek to apply God's revealed will for us, which is this word, that we seek to apply this to our life and follow it all of our days. That we don't deviate from what God calls us to do and we know what God calls us to do through his word. That we stand 
steadfast in the truth of what God has revealed to us, of the word that he has delivered to us. That even if someone or the culture or people we know might encourage us to deviate, to go through, do something or not do something that we know we're commanded or called to do as the word lets out, we don't listen to them, but rather we listen to who God is and what he calls us to do. Which means if we do that, if we take that example and we apply it to ourselves, which means we have to, first of all, know what God says. We have to be in the word and spend time with God to know it and to uh, see the commands and see how we're supposed to follow and, and apply it to our life. We need to know it and, 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 and read it and follow and apply it again and again, day by day. And when we do that, then we can stand confident that we refuse to deviate from God's call. But even when we are standing fast and we're following God, something can happen just like in Paul's story, where there are people out of good intentions, out of love, who think they know better than you or think they know better than God. Because this is what happens to Paul, is that he's firm, he's, he's, he's walking in God's ways, and he says, God has called me to Jerusalem, that's what he's going to do. And there's two occasions on his trip back where he's basically warned by people who love him, we don't think you should do this. It's not going to end well. Don't do this. And we see that in, in, in verse 4 when it says that, and through the, the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then we see that account in, in verses uh, 10 and 12 when this prophet Agabus comes up to Philip's house and he takes Paul's belt and he, and he binds his, his arms and his legs and say, hey, whoever owns this belt is going to be bound like this by the Jews in Jerusalem and sent off to the Gentiles. And everyone started weeping and say, hey, don't do this, Paul. And when we read this, actually, it raises a lot of questions. I spent a majority of this week wrestling over this. Because what you seem to have on the surface level, it seems like people are, are receiving contradictory promptings by the Spirit. Because it says, Paul was confident in this, but then it says, through the Spirit, they said, don't go, Paul. And so how do you bring that together? And how do you wrestle with that? Who should you listen to? Who is in the right here? Because we know and we're firm and, con and con uh, convinced that the Holy Spirit's not going to contradict himself. The Bible's not going to contradict himself. And so how do we process through that? Well, the first thing I would encourage us to notice is that in this chapter, in the book of Acts, Luke, who's writing this, a companion of Paul, seems to paint Paul in the right. He actually is putting up Paul as an example. He's putting up Paul as he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's painting Paul and putting and saying this he's doing what he's required to, and actually we should follow his courage and his and his steadfastness to do what God God had called him to do, to continue forward. And if that's the case, maybe when we look at a little closer these examples of these people urging Paul not to go, we see that it's probably experiencing the difference between prediction and prohibition. That really maybe they didn't have an urging from the Spirit to prohibit him from going, but they had an urging from the Spirit predicting what was going to happen to him when he went. And they say he's going to experience imprisonment. And affliction is like, no, not Paul. And out of love and out of a good place, they encourage him not to go. In that first instance, it's a little harder to see that, but when we see the, the prophecies of Agabus, 
I think it becomes clear because Agabus, the prophet who's giving this prophecy, never says to Paul, don't go. What does he do? He's just predicting what's going to happen. The person who has this belt that I'm tying around my hands in this dramatic fashion, he's going to be sold off, given to the Gentiles by the Jews. But he never says don't. But the people who hear this prophecy, out of love of Paul, out of, out of uh, understanding of maybe this is not what we should happen, they plead with him to not go. And so I think that makes it a little clearer that, that from this larger context, Paul is painted as, a, as courageous following what God has called him to do, and that these people were taking what they received from God and, and seeing this prediction of what was going to happen to Paul, took it a step further and said, well, maybe that's not what's supposed to happen. And so actually from these people's actions, these Christians who were loving Paul, we some see some mistakes that maybe we should avoid or mistakes that happen when we try to follow or try to dictate to other people how to follow God. And the first mistake, I think, is that they thought that God's, that they, would know, they knew God's will for Paul better than Paul knew it. That they thought they knew what Paul was going to should do better than what Paul had been revealed to by God. And this is an easy thing to do because I think we're experts in knowing what others should do. I mean, it's so easy. Whether you hear a good message or you read something or something happens, you're like, you know, you should probably take care of that. Or you, I mean, that, I think they were talking to you and you need to address that. And so I think this is a typical thing is that we get caught up and we think that we can actually interpret what God calls for someone else to do better than they can themselves. And so we, we start speaking into that and say, well, I really think that was directed at you. I mean, I don't even want to think about me, but it's directed to you. Now, this doesn't mean that when we hear something, we can't speak into people's lives and say this applies well to their situation, not by any means. But it's saying that when we hear something and, and hear how someone's supposed to walk and follow God, that we are quick to listen to them and evaluate them through the word as we, we, we wrestle with that of how they're supposed to follow God. And I think this gets confusing sometimes because when we read this, we want to take Paul's example and what happens with Paul and just bring it straight over to us and say, we do the exact same thing. But the problem with that is we're not Paul. The problem with that is that we live at a different time than Paul. The problem with that is that Paul received a direct revelation in some form or fashion from God, do this, and he was steadfast in that. Now, chances are you might not be that confident in what how God is communicating to you. But we operate on a different, uh, in a different fashion because we have God's word. Why we're not Paul and we don't have that direct revelation that pun points go to Jerusalem. We have God's word on how we should follow, how we should walk, how we should live for him, and we follow that and stand firm on that truth because we know it's a sure guide to guide us in the ways of God. So that mistake is that they thought they knew better what was good for Paul better than him Another mistake I think these people are making is that they thought, they had this belief that God's purpose for Paul would not include his suffering. They don't say that, but basically they're saying suffering was going to come to Paul, Paul don't go. That can't possibly be what God wants you to do. You can't walk in those ways. Infliction and imprisonment await you. 
you shouldn't do that. They had that mistake of believing that when God calls us to an action, it's easy street. It's nice. It's peaceful. It's easy to walk in his ways. But the reality is sometimes God calls us to things that are not easy, that are not fun, that he leads us through paths of life that we're like, why would you do this? And we can struggle with understanding it, but we trust in the one who's leading us. But they had fallen on this mistake of believing that God calls us just to the good things and not to fall even when it gets hard. I mean, when you think about the whole Bible, it testifies again and again about how God calls us to follow him even through hardship. And that Paul knew this really well. He had already experienced a life of hardship as he preached the gospel to these towns. He experienced beatings and being thrown out and having to run from riots and from crowds wanting to kill him. He knew that to follow God required him to sacrifice maybe his comfort and the good thing and the things he might want. And he followed those things all the more. Why? Because he knew God can use those things for spreading the gospel. Use those things for reaching people. I mean, he says it himself in, in the book of uh, uh, Philippians. In Philippians 1, he talks about writing from prison. He's writing from prison, the prison that he's about to go into, be sent into Rome. He's writing from that prison, and what does he say? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and, all, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having been, become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That Paul, now even looking back on what he's about to experience, can write and say, God's call to me might bring me into affliction and imprisonment, but God is using that in ways that sometimes we can't even see. And then related to this, I think, is a common mistake they made was that they were forgetting to look at life and what we're called to in kind of God's perspective as well as we can. That they had spiritual nearsightedness, if you will. All they could see what was going on right now in their circumstance. And because that's all they could see, they see suffering, they see affliction, they say, bad, don't go, Paul. When in reality, when we raise our eyes and we, we look through the lens of Scripture, we see again and again how God has a bitter, bigger perspective than we possibly could imagine and uses these things in our lives to a glory for himself and for a spread of the gospel that can boggle the mind. And then that again and again, he's operated through this way of using these circumstances that we sometimes can only see here, but for his glory, if we just would look up. I mean, famous examples throughout the Bible are, are the, uh, the Israelites when they're brought out of Egypt, right? They're being brought by God out of Egypt, but somehow in this whole miraculous salvation event of them being brought out of Egypt from slavery, they, they kind of come nearsighted. And they just look around and they start complaining about the food they're eating. Yeah, God is great that we have bread in the morning and quail at the night, but, you know, back in Egypt we had leeks and onions, and it was wonderful. And they're just nearsighted. Even as a pillar of fire, fire led them at night and a cloud by day, they got nearsighted and were not thinking in things in God's perspective. But then even going further, we see a, maybe the greatest example that relates to this 
is that Peter himself, hearing Jesus say, hey, I'm about to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Jews. And what does Peter say? Don't go. By no means. Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. And Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. That had to hurt. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That Peter was getting spiritually nearsighted. He forgot perspective. And all he heard was that his beloved Jesus was going to go and suffer. And he says, don't do it. And Jesus says, consider this perspective of God. It's through this, Peter, that you are going to be saved. It's from this that my kingdom is going to be built. It's so easy sometimes to lose our perspective of what God calls us to do and how we're supposed to walk in him. We get caught up in normal life. We get caught up in the trials and the, and the joys and the good things, but in, in the nine to five or however our life is structured, it's so easy to go through life and, and become spiritually interblinded where we, we forget what he's called us to do. But again and again, the Bible calls us back to see how God is at work and to follow him no matter what. And so Paul, even as these people plead with him not to go, what does he do? He refuses and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. Because he knew he was called to refuse to deviate from God's call. And these mistakes from these people serve as a warning for us. They serve as when we read this and we say we shouldn't be like them, we should actually be quick to follow what God has called, but when we're looking at other people, we should be quick to listen to them as they describe what God has called. And since we're not like Paul, and we're not saying at this time frame that we evaluate all things through the Scripture, this sure revelation of who God is. And so when someone says, this is why I feel God has called me to do, we, we say, let's look at this, and if it's, it's supported by the Word, and it's grounded and it's honoring to God, we say, go, brother or sister, do it. Walk in that faithfully. But it's also a warning that when we are encouraging people and they say, I feel like God has called me to do this and it is in contradiction to what God has revealed through his word, we encourage them to look again. Encourage them to understand what God has called us to do, which is to follow him and be holy as he is holy. But when we're confident in what God has called us and we're standing on the firm truth of the word, we refuse to deviate from it. For God has called us to follow that. And all of this is there's that important question because we're quick to say, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? We see that back there for Paul and those people back there and those towns that are funny to pronounce. What does it mean for me in my life now? Well, it's a question of how do we know what God has called us to do? How do we know what God has called us to stay faithful in? How do we know what God has called us not to deviate from? As I said, this is an important question because we're all called to do, we're all being called by these various things and they're pulling us and we're called by our feelings and we're called by, by our desires and we're called by the, you know, the flow of culture to follow along. And so there's all these things pulling on us in different, these different ways. And so how do we know how God has called us to follow him? And I'll just encourage you on these few things is that fundamentally, just like Paul stood on the revelation that God had given him that he was going to go to Jerusalem, we stand on the revelation that God has given us, which is his word. And we stand on that, and we 
we, we dig down into that and we see it as that guide or that, that orientation for all of our lives that we see this word, the word of the Bible, as that beacon that guides and directs us in all that we do. That serves as that reference point that when we get lost in this crazy world, we can look back to it and it grounds us in reality. So there's a story of this, of this uh, explorer. He's a, he was a famous explorer of the South Pole. You might have heard this story before. I've used it before, but uh, I think it just shows that the idea of having a reference point, a beacon for that we can orient ourselves on. His name was Admiral Richard Byrd, and he was famous for exploring the South Pole. He, he explored Antarctica several times, and in fact, he even stayed in Antarctica through the winter by himself in 1934. And he recounts one time, as he's staying in the shelter, he would go exploring. I don't know why, but he would like to go see the endless expanse of whiteness. And so he would go and explore. And so the only way he could finally stay, find his shelter back again was that he, every now and then he would plant a bamboo a pole and string a line from it. And so he would know it and he would plant a bowl. And so at every, I think, 100 paces, he would do this because it was so cold that there was not even footprints in the snow. It was all ice and it was like a flat, endless expanse. And so after a little while, he couldn't even see his hut. And so one time he's exploring, he's planting a pole, and then all of a sudden he realized, oh, wait a minute, it's been a while since I planted a pole. His mind had wandered, as humans do. And so he looked back and he couldn't find the pole, the last pole. He's like, oh, no, where do I go from here? And instead of panicking, instead of freaking out, thinking he's lost because he could head out in any direction and he could even get further from his shelter, and night was quickly approaching, he, approaching, he would probably end up dying from exposure out in the southern pole night. He, he digs through this frozen ice, and he makes this mound of snow that he can see from the horizon, he, and he kind of called it his snow beacon. It was a reference point. From there, he, could, he, could, he went kind of angled back where he thought that last pole was, and he started walking. And when he got to the edge of his vision of his reference point, he stopped and looked for the pole, and he couldn't see it. So he retraced his steps back to his reference point. And then he looked again and went the next couple of degrees over and did it again. And in that way, he was able actually to find that last pole that he had planted, which makes him, means he was able to find his way back to shelter. That snow pile, that beacon, was his reference point. It guided him. It, it made a, like a secure location. He knew where he was, at least in reference to that. And Paul had that same sense of a reference point, a guidance, a beacon, a, a, a reference point for his life in that revealed um, will of God when he received from the Holy Spirit. And we have a same reference point, a guidance point, something that orients our whole life, something that we can look back to and go back to again and again, and it plants us, makes us sure, and knows how we are supposed to orient, and actually can get us back to shelter. And what is that? It's the word of God. And so the Word of God is that reference point for life that we continue to go back to it again and again because it shows how we're supposed to follow. It shows how God has saved us and how we're, we follow in light of that. So we stand on His Word. And then because we are fallible people reading His Word, infallible Word, we stand in community. 
And we take his word and we, we search it and we, we study it and we read it and we seek to apply it. And then at the same time, we stand in community with a community that does the exact same thing, that's searching his word and applying it. And so we stand together and we can reinforce one another and we can speak that truth into one another because we need that community. Because sometimes, sometimes we can read this word and we want it to say something else, just like the people wanted God's will to say that suffering shouldn't happen. We can read this and we want it to maybe say something else or guide us in a different direction than what, we, what it actually says. And we need that community to stand with us and lovingly say, let's go back to God's word and see what it truly says and walk in his ways. That we go back and we have these general principles from the word and we seek to apply these things from God's word, and we need that help of our friends and our families who trust in God, who know his word, to help us apply it out and think through how we're supposed to follow God. Giving us that confidence that once we know how we're supposed to follow, that we refuse to be deterred from it and go away from it. That we follow him no matter what. Fundamentally, what this means is that we do what we know we're supposed to do. Seems like a simple concept, but if you have kids, you know that's not so simple. They know what they're supposed to do. We, we, you know yourself. You know what you're supposed to do, and how often do we not do what we're supposed to do? But it's a simple concept that if you want to know what God has called you to do, you know some things he's called you to do. Fundamentally, you know that. If you've been in church at any time, or if you've read your Bible at any time, you've seen these commands that if people believe in the Lord, they're supposed to love one another. They're supposed to serve one another. They're supposed to be there for one another. You're supposed to speak the truth in love. You're supposed to demonstrate these things of hospitality and these, these traits and these virtues that are given to us throughout the Scriptures. And so we know some things that we're supposed to do, and we're supposed to walk in those things. And that we know, the things that we know we're supposed to do, we do them. And when it gets down to the nitty-gritty or the more complex things or the things that maybe we're trying to apply in these, uh, these situations, we seek that community to stand on the word to see how we're supposed to walk through these things. So what does it mean? What has God called you to do? Well, I love a paraphrase of my favorite 14th century church father. You all have yours. I have mine. Your favorite 14th century, uh, uh, 4th century church father, Augustine. And to paraphrase him, he says simply, love God and do what you want. I love that because it seems so simple. It seems too simple. Like, no, 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 no. Hasn't God in his revealed will given me a blueprint for how I'm supposed to live my life? You're like, no, God has given you a revealed will of what he wants you to do. And if you love God, truly love God, submit your whole life to God, and are following God, guess what? Do what you want, because what you want to do should be birthed from that love of God. And so when you come to these big dilemmas, can I do this or can I do that? And if they're both honoring God, and you're walking in his ways, and, and you have taken advisement from your family and friends, and they're both kind of equal in terms of things, guess what? You love God, and then you do what you want. And it's that simple. And people are like, well, no, no, I want to know. I make sure I'm in God's will. And I say, well, you are if you're loving God and following that. Because 
we get caught up thinking somehow God has revealed A, then B, then C, and if we get off track, maybe we'll be displeasing God, but I don't think that's how he operates. He gives us these revealed will where he shows us how we're supposed to love one another. He shows us how we're supposed to share with one another the gospel. He shows us how we're supposed to serve. He shows us how we're supposed to gather together and worship his holy name and minister together and be out in our community and making sure the gospel is proclaimed to everyone who could possibly hear. He shows us all these things, and so if we're following his will and if we're walking in his ways and we're doing those things or seeking to do those things more and more each day, then when it comes down to our personal life and these decisions we do, we submit to God in the word and through prayer. We love him and then we walk we do what is in front of us. We love him and then we do what we want. Because he gives us what we need to follow him. And in all of these things, in all these decisions we make, in all these, the life we do, we trust him in them. For I love the response of the people who were begging and crying with Paul saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going. And they're like, well, he's going. And so what is their response? They say, let the, Lord, let, let the will of the Lord be done. They come to this place of trust and understanding that they might not understand what's happening. They might understand what God's calling Paul to. They might be confused and not understanding how it's all going to work out, which I think describes all of us in almost every moment of our life, right? We're looking around. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand how it's going to work out. We don't understand how he's going to redeem that situation or he's going to use that situation, and we don't understand why he'll let me go through that darkness or what we're experiencing right now. We don't understand it, but we come to a place where we have to trust in him, the one who calls us, the one who is good, the one who's our heavenly father, the one who sends his son to die for us, the one who works in us, who the one who's going to bring us to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We trust in him, and we come to a place where we say, let the will of the Lord be done. We trust and walk in that. We respond to him with that faith. Respond to him, with, to God, with that trust. And in our life, as we walk in his ways, we refuse to deviate from what God has called us to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian and pastor, he was killed by the Nazis at the end of World War II. He was, you know, famous for uh, actually being part of a plot to try to assassinate Hitler. And he wrote in a book, and he basically said this: "says When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." And I love that quote because I think it sums up what the Christian life is: is that when God, when Christ calls a man, when he, a woman, when he calls someone to follow him is a giving up of yourself is a giving up of your understanding sometimes of how he's working is a giving up of your prerogatives and and what you might want to have happened and you submit to him and you realize there's a call to come and die and through that we realize we're given true life as we have meaning and purpose given to us by our father is that we come and we die and we now stand in what god has called us to do and follow him no matter what. That's not a great sales pitch to be a Christian. It's not the God, if you follow him and if you walk in his ways, you're going to be nice and happy. You're going to have that car you want. You're going to, you, your bank account's going to look like you want. You're going to get that position. That's not the promises we have 
from Scripture. The promise we have from Scripture is that we follow God, if we know God, if He has saved us, and we walk in His ways, our life will be right as He defines what's right. Our life will be successful as He defines what's successful, which is pleasing to God. We have that great promise that He has redeemed us and now calls us to be His own, and we walk in His ways because we know that is what God has called us to do. But we'll find the only true meaning and purpose and fulfillment that this life has to offer in the maker of this life. So all these things, we refuse to deviate from God's call. And we walk in his ways. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word. That we can read it, we can understand it, that we can be taught by it to see how we're supposed to respond to you. That we can see how we're supposed to live out what you've called us to do. And in, in, I just pray for all of us that we can be confident as we read your word that we are shown how we're supposed to follow you and how we're supposed to live for you. That we are given a community by you and a, a word by you that we can walk in those ways and understand it and, and be yours. So Lord, I just pray for all of us that we can be confident in what you've called us to do. That we be, can be confident in the gospel that you have given us that saves us that we can be confident in the new life that we have from you and we can walk in fullness of it. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. This last song we've been, uh, it's uh, one that most of us are already familiar with, but it's a new song, so we've been singing it each week. <laughs>